Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Let's pray. Father of grace and mercy, Lord of salvation, where there is cloudiness and unclarity, where there is clutter in our minds, and unwillingness to hear your word, we pray that your spirit would suppress any such thought, bring to our understanding and our minds the truthfulness of your word, suppress any, anything that rises up against your truth, remove from us the unwillingness to be obedient and if awake within us a desire to live and walk in the light of who you are. Change those who need changing. Sanctify all of us and save those who need saving, Lord. May you magnify yourself in the preaching of this word for your glory. Amen. We return to James 1. We continue to look at this subject regarding the believer in trial and temptation. I've given you a fourfold outline of the section that we are in, and we looked at it a few weeks ago, beginning this month. We looked at the divine essence of God in verse 13. We looked at the innate nature of man in verse 14 and 15. And then I said there's two more aspects or qualities of God that James highlights. And we will look at that later. The section begins with a very, in a very abrupt way. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived. And often as you go through commentaries and theological books, you will note that verse 16 is absent or very uh, dimly dealt with. It receives one or two lines. Now on verse 17 and 18, there is a tremendous amount of information, and rightly so. It's theological in nature, and so yes, you have a lot more writing on that. But here James begins uh, the section with a command and what is called in Hebrew, uh, in Greek, the vocative of address, speaking to a certain group of people. And you see this connection taking place at least ten more times in this book. So he's shifting gears as such. The first time we see it is in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, a command, and then the evocative. Now in verse 16 is the second time you see it in this chapter. Do not be deceived and the vocative, my beloved brothers. You see it again in verse 19. Know this and then the vocative, my beloved brothers. You want to pay attention to that. 
It's called a linguistic literary tool that James uses to show I am moving on. So be aware. We're moving away from the aspect of trials and now temptation to a different discussion. And we will look at that as he transitions to it. So it's an important verse. He goes from concluding the previous to introducing the next. It's the hinge verse in this discussion. It doesn't mean that James is now completely done with trials, because he'll get back to it later. But he's, he's adding a different nuance at this stage. <clears throat> James says in verse 13 that believers should not blame God. For those of you who weren't here, I'm just going to do a brief survey of what we've looked at. The command there is, let no one say that when he is tempted, in the word there is trial or in a trial, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So in the first case, James tells us, This is why you cannot tempt God, because he is firstly untemptable, which deals with the nature of God. He possesses no capacity to be drawn out to do evil. Second theological truth that we looked at, which was last week, week, is the innate nature of man, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and Enticed by his own desire. And I said the verse structure is as follows. But each person is tempted by his own desire when he is lured and enticed. But in English it makes a little bit more sense to put the qualifying clause in the middle. Then we looked at the process by which all mankind is tempted. So the second theological truth we looked at is the reality that all mankind is inherently sinful. And rightly stated on Wednesday, this is homotheology, it's the study of sin. It tells us the, the innate nature of all mankind. We are all in the same boat, is what James says. Everybody, when temptation comes, will always be drawn out to sin. This is seen in the natural analogy of a pregnant woman. The birthing process cannot stop. Once it is begun, the net result will ensue. James says, all of us, we are depraved beings, and we all have compromised hearts, which causes us to be temptable. Those are the two theological truths that James dealt with initially. God is untemptable, man is definitely temptable. So now at this stage, in verse 16, he transitions to a slightly different attack. The two previous points were negative. Don't blame God, because he's untemptable. It's a negative. And man is, by nature, sinful. It's negative. Now he provides two positive points as a defense against why we cannot blame God. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lies, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's nature is good. Secondly, 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Take note of that clause because it comes up again. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's work is good. So James now gives us two positive attributes about God. First, his nature is good and his work is good. The divine uh, um, essence of God and the divine work of God. In response to the claim in verse 13, I am being tempted by God. James says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. My title for this morning is Don't Be Deceived. God is good. I stole it from James. That's what he says. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I'm going to pause at verse 16. Because James includes it for a reason. In fact, you could take it out and read 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, and it makes perfect sense. But he puts this command right in the middle. If you have a chiastic structure, verse um, 13 and uh, through to 15 are negative. Two points there which are negative. Then on the other side of a 16, you have 17 and 18, which is positive. Right in the middle, you have a 16. It's a command. It concludes the previous points, and it's, sorry for talking so loud, baby. It concludes the previous two points and it introduces the next two points. So keep that in mind as a chaotic structure. Negatively, this is why you don't blame God. Positively, this is why you cannot ever blame God. In the middle, here we have this command. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There is one point. Do not ever be led astray about God's goodness in your trials because by nature God is good. That's the point. If you leave, if you forget everything else and you leave here this morning, remember that. By nature he is good and so he can never do anything evil to his people. The problem is that we define evil on our terms. When we think of um, God's goodness, we think as goodness in terms of the removal of all suffering. If God is good, why does evil happen? If God is good, why am I in this trouble? That's how we think of goodness because we think that goodness means to be lifted above the suffering and the affliction of the world. What is the greatest good that God has given to this world? His son, rightly said. What happened to his son? Died on a cross. Is that not good? Well, no, because his son died, but it is good in terms of our salvation. So, yes, it is good. See, God's good includes hardship, includes death, includes suffering, and that's the problem. We don't see it that way. We think goodness, we think goodness is everything except that hardship that you're in. Or it needs to exclude that hardship that you are in. I've got three questions this morning. I'm not going to give it to you up front because you can answer it from the text. It's pretty simple. (laughs) The first is, why this command? 
you may be able to deduce it from verse 13 through to 15. Why this command? Well, because, number one, of the horrendous nature of the accusation. Verse 13. Let no one say that when he is tried, I am tempted by God. Now notice how he qualifies this. For God cannot be tempted with evil. The implication is I am being tried or tempted by God to do what? Evil. God's nature is being attacked. It claims that God puts a believer in a trial to draw them out to do wickedness, to do evil. That's the accusation. The theological implication is much weightier than we, exp- uh, that we might think. This is seen in the defense that James provides here. James does not begin with man's innate nature, which is sin and sinfulness, but he begins with God's essence. He says that God cannot be tempted with evil. God is therefore untempted. Temptable. This is the defense. It is the essence of God. Understand the impact of this accusation. If believers say, God tempts me in a trial, then they're also saying that God possesses the capacity to be tempted by evil. That's horrendous. This means that God is able to sin. Since temptation leads to sin, It relates only to fallen mankind. It can therefore never be applied to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ who is what? God. This implies, if it is true, if the claim is true in verse 13, that God is therefore not holy and possesses the same nature as mankind which casts doubt on God. Why the command? Secondly, because of what it implies, not only about God, but about man. Because of the horrendous implication for or of man. If it is true that God tempts believers in trials to sin, then we are innocent when we sin in trials. When believers blame God, we not only assert that God has sinned and can sin, but we are also saying that man is not to blame for sin when he does sin. Do you see the problem? We are saying that God is causing us to do evil. Therefore, we must be guiltless in the process. If that's the case, we don't need salvation. Because then all the blame shifts to God. It makes man the victim and God the evil perpetrator. Now I want you to think about that. When we blame God for our temptation, when we say that God is the tempter, we are making God equal to the devil. 1 Thessalonians, you can turn there, chapter 3. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer bear it, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has deceived 
lure you away, and our labor would be in vain. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the devil is called the tempter. The import of blaming God for our sin is that we turn God in what he can never be by equating God to the devil. We make God the tempter. James says, when you have an anemic understanding of God, then you have an anorexic view of man. The sad reality is that you bring down God to the level of deceiver, and man is exalted to the place of innocence. Verse 16. Therefore, brothers, don't be deceived. That is not God if it is true. And you are not truly man if it is true about yourself. James understands the weight of this accusation and wants believers not only to know the truth, but also live in light of the truth. And we will see that later. So the question occurs because of what it implies about God. Secondly, what does it mean to not be deceived? The command is very simple. Verse 16 is plain uh, to our eyes. Do not be deceived. Now, this word can be uh, applied in a variety of of ways. It has various applications. Uh, Firstly, it could mean to go astray from a specific way. Um, When when you you wander, you know, when your family is maybe at Legoland um, and uh, the rest of them walk one way and you, watching the fairies, walk the other way. One of my boys would know exactly what that means. But you get lost because you wandered from a specific spot or a specific group. It refers to sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 18, 12, 1 Peter 2, 25. The sense of wandering as, as sheep who are, who are just meandering, just going blindly about. That's the idea. The, the passive aspect of it uh, indicates that they are being led away, being lured away from the flock. And it's not that there is someone doing it, but because their nose are so stuck to the juicy grass that they don't see where they're going. They just keep on walking. Have you seen sheep graze? They just keep on doing this. They keep on walking until they reach a cliff and it's too late. Secondly, it can be used of people who wander like sheep. The, equ- the equation is horrendous in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, 28, and sometimes it's used of us. That we wander like sheep in the wilderness without a shepherd. Thirdly, it could mean to mislead, deceive, and this is the more common use, the more common sense. Here's what I want you to note about this usage. There is a close connection between prophetic ministry, speaking, teaching, and deception. Matthew 24, 4. I don't do this often where I go outside of my passage to prove a point, but in this case what I want to point out is the weight of this command. And I want you to see how important it is to the book of James. So we'll get back to James in a moment's time. James is one of the earliest writers, the earliest writer in the New Testament. 
the earliest book. And the others, or the other writers, echo what he says about deception. Jesus uses it prior to James in his discussion on um, the sermon, not the sermon, on, on the Olivet Discourse, discourse in verse 4 of chapter 24. Notice what he says. As he sat on Mount Olives, um, that is a key verse in understanding the prophetic nature of what is taking place here. The Bible, the, the Bible, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And that relates to him being on the sermon uh, on the Mount of Olives because there's a connection to both Zechariah and Jeremiah to him being there and the final end to come. What will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? Is the implication there. And Jesus answered them, See that no one, see those words, lead you astray? It's actually deceive you. And the reason why I say that is look at what Jesus says next. See that no one deceives you. Here's why. For many will come in my name saying, Claiming, making a claim. I am the Christ and they will deceive many. Take notice the plural. Many will come in my name and will say, I am singular, the Christ. There's going to be many antichrists. And they will deceive many. See the sense in which lead astray or deception is being used there? It relates to a specific word or a claim that is being made. And in this case, it is that it is Christ that has arrived on earth. In John 7, it is used negatively of Christ, where the Pharisees claim that Jesus is deceiving many, deceiving people. He's leading them astray. What are they talking about? The teaching ministry of Jesus. They say are leading people away from the law. The opposite was true, obviously. I don't like how the ESV translates this word deceive. It's translated led away or led astray. That's too weak of a sense in the original. It, it means to, to capture the mind and to deceive or persuade in such a way that the one who follows is absolutely convinced. That is deception. Go to Revelation chapter 2. That uh, church in Thyatira. How, how did you say it, Mark? The church in uh, Thyatira, look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is what? Teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. You know what is being described here? Deception. With regards to the teaching, the prophetic ministry of Jezebel, whoever she is or was, there's a connection between what she taught and seducing people away from the truth to follow her lie. 
Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And now you, you saw in 2 Timothy, in, in Revelation, that there's a connection between the deceptive ministry and the ungodliness which follows. Take note, in 2 Timothy 3, uh, I'm going to read from 11, uh, 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct and aim in life. There's a connection between the teaching and how I lived my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued or saved me. I, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Take note of this. Evil people, on the other hand, we get persecuted. The evil people, on the other hand, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Wow. They are not only deceiving people, but they are themselves self-deceived. What is he talking about there? A teaching ministry. There are those who will deceive and, 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 and uh, be deceived. But notice what he says to Timothy in verse 14. But as for you, continue on in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The truth causes you to live in a certain way. But as for you, do not follow the deception. Do not follow the lie. Do not follow the teaching that moves you away from the truth and away from godliness. As for you, you follow what I have taught you. See, deception leads you away from a standard. You can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6-9, Galatians 6-7. And in all of these cases, it is used in the same way that James uses it. Deception in the Bible, in almost every case, is in the context of a false claim, a lie, or perverted truth that, is, um, that stands against God. It stands opposed to the truth. At the heart of all deception is to draw someone away from the truth or the truth about God. By making the lie, take note of this, so compelling and presenting it so close to the truth that it is easy to deceive the one who receives it as truth. Make sense? So it, it is given as if it is truth and it is so close to the real thing that those who are hearing it saying, Oh, I never thought about that. That, that sounds plausible. And they believe it and follow it. That is deception. Teaching or compromised truth causes people, people to wander away from God's standard. This is the sense in which James is using it. Now, let me ask you, go back to James. Do not be deceived. And notice this pastoral note. My beloved brothers. He doesn't 
as it would beloved a lot. And when he does, there's a very sincere call for attention. Please listen to me, my brothers. Let me ask you, what wrong theological point is being taught in the synagogue that James is combating? It's pretty clear, right? No? Verse 13. Let no one say, when in a trial, yet it is, I am tempted by God. That is a lie. That is deception. That is close to the truth because God puts you what? In a trial. And they're saying, well, yes, God does that, but when he puts you in a trial, guess what he's doing? He's tempting you to do wrong. James says, don't fall for it. Don't buy the lie. That is not true doctrine. That is doctrine that will cause you to wander away from the truth and in opposition to God and live away which results in sin. There were false teachers or teachers who were, uh, who were so close to the truth but teaching errant views in this synagogue, deceiving many. You'll see that later in chapter 3. He says, not everybody of you should be teachers. Why does it matter? Third question, why does it matter? Because the deceived don't realize they are deceived. This group of believers who have been in the synagogue with the saints because of persecution, they left the church in Jerusalem, had to flee, and they found a synagogue to meet with God's people, but there were unbelievers in the synagogue, and they were being swayed to believe a lie about God. So James is protecting them from these lies. So why is it important? Because false doctrine leads to a life that is both sinful and immoral. Believing a lie about God will not only deceive people, but cause them to live in accordance with that lie. This is why James provides the corrective in verse 18 and 19. Take a look. 17 and 18, sorry where he says, every good gift and every perfect gift, and we will look at that uh, next, next time, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So you believe the lie about God. This is the truth. God is good by nature. It is interesting how James contrast, or I should say, offsets the lie with what? Truth about God. See, deception is close to the truth, but not the whole truth. Whereas the truth about God is the absolute truth which delivers God's people from deception. And that is what James is after. It is not enough to say, stop. In fact, that is the force of this command when he says, Stop being deceived. Stop allowing yourself to be led to wander from the truth. It's not enough to say stop. You've got to provide the corrective, and that is what James does here. Believing a lie about God will not only deceive God's people, 
but also cause them to live in a way that reflects that lie. And I will point that out in a moment's time. This is why James gives us the importance of the truth in people's lives. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now he's moving the discussion on further, connecting it to the word of truth. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness um, and receive with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. Take note of this. And not hearers only. What's that last line? Deceiving yourselves. Do you see how he writes? He doesn't ever leave the discussions holy. He always comes back to it. The truth is what James highlights as being important for the life of the believer. And notice all the sins which he highlights. Why? Because if you, if you detract from the truth, it affects your life. Any deception, anything that deceives you will cause you to live in the light of that deception and not the truth. Deception is deceptively dangerous. It's like flying... A plane with a broken altimeter. Uh, you know what an altimeter is. So you wouldn't know how high you are from the ground, which is a problem. It gives you a false sense of security. It's like reversing without the beeper. You have a car, you, those of you who have cars, you know the beep, beep, beep. And some of you have a really fancy cars. It's got a little camera in it, shows you that there's a tree behind you. And some people still knock the tree, but anyway. Uh, no, there are sensors behind your car, but when the sensors are off, you're not going to know how far you are from the object. That is what deception does. It gives you a false sense of security. No, I'm okay, I'm okay. And men, they push the limit, right? That, that beep has to go beep before they stop. Because then they know I'm really close now. Where's... Most logical people will, you know, when it says beep, beep, okay, I know I need to stop. I'm close now. But certain men, say my nooks. The heart of this discussion is that deception will lead you astray from the truth. James says, don't be fooled in believing that God is somehow responsible in causing you to sin. Don't follow that lie. I'm a very simple person. My, my wife will tell you. Very simple. Now, one plus one equals two. Not this new math, which one plus one equals. Let's break down now. A half or four quarters. Then two halves plus four quarters equals. <laughs> that's your answer. <laughs> that's too complicated for me. When the Bible says that God is untemptable, I believe it. That's what it says. God is not able to be tempted. But then logic kicks in. But what about Jesus? Well, since Jesus were, was led in the wilderness to be tempted, well, how, what, do you deal, what do you do with that? Surely he was tempted. No, he was led to be tempted. doesn't mean he was what? Tempted. Because God says in his word that he is by nature untemptable. 
And I believe that. That is the absolute truth about God. And yet you find theological books that will tell you that Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin, so it doesn't really matter. So he was tempted like you and me. He was tempted to to sin, but he didn't sin. The answer is not that he didn't sin. The answer is that he could not sin. So that that is what Hebrews says. There's no possible way for him to sin. There is an effect upon the life of those who believe the lie. Go to chapter 5. And I know this is going to cause a little bit of discussion for Wednesday. But I'm going to go here anyway. Because James uses this word wonder or deception again. Here we see the danger of being deceived. Look at verse 19. My brothers. Who are those? Probably saints. If anyone among you is deceived from the truth, wonders, or let us straight, the same word used, chapter 1, wonders from the truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his deception or wandering will save his soul and uh, soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James, why did you end with that? That brings up a lot of discussion, and we'll get to that on Wednesday, hopefully. There is not only deception here, same word, and some commentators saying he's referring back to chapter 1, verse 16. But there's a movement away, not only from the truth, but also from the community, because now you're going after him to bring him back. Take note of that. So the deception has led them to not only wander from the truth itself, but also from the community, and they are comfortable moving away from the community. Let's think about that. The idea of wandering here is not fleeing from the truth. They're not running away. They are walking as if the truth that they are believing, or should I say, the deception that they are believing is the truth. They are comfortable in their place. There is a measure of peaceable wandering or walking away in the wrong direction. You don't know that you're heading in the wrong direction until it is too late. Because they are deceived. I know, what do we do with the word sinner here? It's actually an adjective. So it's descriptive of the person. So it could be uh, described or translated as the sinning one. Whoever brings back, if it's used as a true adjective, it should then be say, Whoever brings back a sinning one, or brother, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James says, 
the one who is caused to wander from the truth is also in a position to be delivered from that deception to return to the truth. Is this a believer or unbeliever? Now, we're going to bash it out on Wednesday, but I'm telling you where my conviction is. It's a believer. Because of the way that he uses certain words and the way that he structures this verse, I am absolutely convinced that this is a believer. Now, for you smarty pants, how will he save his soul then? I mean, if he's saved, uh, then why would he need to have his soul saved anyway? Why would he need to be saved from death anyway if he's already uh, saved? Well, it relates to Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. But notice that it is not God who saves, but the brother who saves him. The brother saves him. Notice what it says. Whoever brings back the sinning one or the, uh, a sinner from his wandering, he, the antecedent is the one who brings him back, he will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Hmm, interesting. So we'll deal with that on Wednesday. I'm not going to go too much into detail with that because that's going to cause more confusion for this sermon. In deception, what James is highlighting here is that this person was so absolutely convinced that the lie was the truth, that he lived in accordance with the lie, which caused him to wander from the truth and the community. In deception, the facts of the deception make sense. In deception, discernment is compromised. In deception, reason and logic is deceived, for lack of a better word, and conscience responds to what it thinks is truth. Does that make sense? So in deception, you cannot see the world like it's supposed to be seen. Because you are blinded by the worldview, the the deception, the world that you're in, and you can only see the truth in that world or through that worldview. You can't see things rightly. The sad thing is that you're comfortable in that deception. You don't know you are being deceived. Why? Because it is truth to you. I know it sounds postmodern, but that is what deception does. It gives you a false view of what is true. And so you wonder. And horrendously, you make life-changing decisions based on that deception. Why? Because you think it's truth. That is dangerous. Look at LGBTQ plus Z. X, Y, Z. Think woke. Think social justice. We in the church see the error, right? We, we can see it. But have you ever spoken or even listened to some of the arguments? That the, they are absolutely sure that their view is true. They, they, they are absolutely convinced that that is the only way. Think of creation and evolution. They are absolutely sure. In, in fact, if you pick up an evolutionary manual, they say, we know that 65 billion years ago, Lie. We know that uh, before there was life, there was this pool of unregenerate um, (laughs) mud and lightning possibly struck it. And something got fused in that mud and then then, uh, the first forms of life appeared 
And out of that pool of nonsense, which is nothing, came your first life. We know and we see the foolishness in that. But to them, absolutely true. And you hear these guys on National Geographic and Discovery, with absolute surety, 65 million years ago, this happened. Five million years ago, this happened. And you think, why don't you see it? Why don't you, do you understand how foolish you sound? No, they don't sound foolish to themselves. And those who believe it don't see the foolishness in it. Why? Because they are deceived. They can only see the truth in that world. The same goes for social justice and wokeness. The same goes with BLM. Once you get caught up in it, the only thing you see is that world and that world of truth. It makes sense to them. And here's the thing, they are willing to die for that lie. It is truth in their world. James says, believe us, this is a command. Resist being tempted to believe the lie. Resist it. By all means that you can, refuse to follow it. The corrective provided in chapter 1 is this. God's nature is good and God's work is good. Look at verse 17. Oh, my time is gone. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and every perfect gift. Here's what James is saying. You know what the trial that you're in? The affliction is not to to lead you into temptation. It is not to cause you to be abandoned, to be tempted to do wrong. But the trial that you're in is part of God's good gifts to you. Why? Because by his nature, he can only, only give good gifts. Secondly, he's given you the greatest gift. Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's not only good by nature, but he provides the greatest gift. What is he saying? Your soul is eternally secure because of what God did for you. But if you are only in verse 14 and 15, you will wander away from the truth, not only so, but you will end up in death. The counterbalance to believing the lie is to give them the truth. God is good. God gives good gifts. These two theological truths is granted to them to meditate upon in the midst of their trials and affliction. James says, you know what? God is good even though your life is hard. Your circumstance doesn't change the nature of God. God gives good gifts, even though it may not seem that way. So James takes the attention of the believer off from suffering, off from sin, off from self, toward the nature and the perfection of God and his work. Why? Because there is nothing, if I may steal some words from Spurgeon, that is so comforting than a contemplation of 
the divine. If you are in trials, what do you look to? God's goodness. If you're in a hardship, what do you look to? The fact that he saved your soul. You may die, you may, you may lose all your possessions, but what is more important? The fact that he has saved you. So James takes the eyes of the believer off the circumstance and he says, look to God and look at what he's done in your life. Next time we look a little bit more deeply at 17 and 18. We don't have the time to go through that now. This is why he places this command where it is. Do not be led astray to wander from the truth. Do not believe the lie because it will affect the way that you live and it will affect the way that you respond to the truth. And this is why you have so many commands in this book that drives them back to the truth because of the impact of believing a lie about God. What is the application? Don't be deceived. Learn the truth about God. It's interesting how James emphasizes theology in this book as the corrective to wrong thinking. Feed on biblical theology. When I mean biblical theology, I mean theology that comes from the Bible. Not somebody sitting in the back room and sucking it out of something, putting on a block spot. God desires us to live in accordance with his word. And the only way that you can do that is to learn the truth about him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your great kindness toward us and all that you did for us in Jesus Christ. You command us to avoid the deception that permeates this world. There's so many ways that we can be deceived. There's so many ways that we can wander from the truth, such as this community that James is writing to. They've been influenced by lies, and their lives demonstrated that. Father, we pray that you would make us wise. Help us to understand what your word says about you, and help us to live in accordance with that revelation. Forgive us where deception has crept in. Forgive us where we were led away from the absolute surety of your word. We pray for forgiveness and also correction, Lord. Help us to walk in the path of righteousness and in the path of your word. We give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.